Will y'all pray with me? Jesus, I just give you thanks for this family. I give you thanks for each person here today, that you know them, that you knit them together, that you know them more intimately than they know themselves. I thank you for this family that you're, that you're planting into the community of Brooklyn, all these exciting things coming up, this vision that you've given us. We wanna be faithful to you, Lord. We wanna serve you well. We wanna serve one another well. We wanna serve those outside of Hope Brooklyn well. We wanna invite people to your feast. Thank you, Lord, for your incredible humility. Thank you for coming, for your gift, the gift of yourself. Inhabit our praises, be with us during this time, and be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Welcome everyone, thanks for coming, thanks for joining us at Hope Brooklyn. My name is Russell, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, as Michelle said, if it's your first time, thank you so much for being here. We know Sundays, uh, New York, time in New York is, is very precious, and so uh, you could be a lot of places on Sundays. Thanks for being with us. Um, we're starting a new series, so you came at a really exciting time. We're starting a series entitled Vision. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna take our vision statement, uh, which is five sentences long, and we're gonna take one sentence each Sunday for the next five Sundays, and we're gonna delve into it. And the reason why we're doing that is twofold. One, we're still in the preview season. We're, we're a church plant, and we are still figuring things out. We're figuring out what it looks like to be a church. And part of that figuring out, not only for, for the staff and for leadership up here on a Sunday morning, but part of figuring that out is also on you guys. Church in the New Testament is never, ever described as an exclusive group of leaders. It is always, 100% of the time, <clears throat> described as the community, the people, you. And so what you see God do throughout the history of the church is raise up groups of people with individual and contextualized visions of how to bring the gospel to their community. And so each week we, we kind of hint at the pillars of our faith. We hint at the pillars that, that are unique to Hope Brooklyn. What we want to do over the next five weeks is take one and sort of delve deeply into it so as to create a culture of ownership, or the Greek word is homothumadon. That's a fun word, fun word. You wanna say that, homothumadon? You could totally say it. I always think of like a dinosaur when I hear that, like the great homothumadon. But basically what it means, it means with one mind. Homothumadon, it comes from hama, homo, same. And thumadon is a derivation of thumas, which means passion, intention, thought. And what's so fascinating about that word is it's used 11 times in the Bible. 10 of those times is in the book of Acts. Now Acts, for those who are unfamiliar, it details the story of the first church. So after Jesus comes in the gospels, he does his thing, he really upsets a lot of people, so much so that they crucify him on a tree, and then he's raised from the dead and ascends to heaven. He gives his spirit to his disciples, and you see the first church, those who would call themselves Jesus followers, explode onto the scene. 
And 10 out of the 11 times in the New Testament that you see that word used, hamathumadon, with one mind, with a singular purpose, with one intention, it's used in Acts. It seems imperative that church plants, new organizations, but specifically church plants, are on the same page, have the same idea. That's kind of what this series is about, creating hamathumadon among us. So, what is our mission statement? It's on our website, but I'm sure we're very busy people, so I'm gonna tell you. Our mission statement is this. Hope Brooklyn is a diverse community that eats together. At the table, we come face to face with Jesus and one another. Through a shared meal, authentic community, and the narrative of Jesus, we are transformed. We live lives of imperfect love, and reckless generosity, engaging our neighborhoods in Brooklyn and beyond according to the gospel of grace. Because God invited us freely to his table, all are invited to ours. And today we're gonna look at that first sentence. Hope Brooklyn is a diverse community that eats together. Hope Brooklyn is a diverse community that eats together. Now, if you were to look at vision statements, do like a random sampling of vision statements of Fortune 500 companies, you'd find ones akin to these three that I just randomly put up here. Toys R Us, to put joy in kids' hearts and a smile on parents' faces. Amazon, to be Earth's most customer-centric company, to build a place where people can come to find and discover anything they might want to buy online. That is audacious. Southwest, to connect people to what's important in their lives through friendly, reliable, and low-cost air travel. Random sampling, but they all have a similar structure and format. Now, what do you notice about that? All of these vision statements start with action verbs. To put, to be, to build, to connect, to do, to make, they start with an intention of movement, of action. Hope Brooklyn's is not that way. We don't start with an action verb, we start with the verb is. What is, is. That was bad, I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> we start with a verb not of doing, but of being. In the theological world, this is called the indicative versus the imperative debate. And it gets us really rowdy in, in the academy. It's, it's actually, it's related to verb moods. So um, doing verbs, verb moods, are imperative verbs, right? They're commands. Do the dishes. Walk the dog. It's a verb, but it's in a command form. Indicative verbs are statements of reality. I walk the dog. I am doing the dishes. And the reason why this is important for us is because the gospel primarily does not tell us what to do. I know some of y'all might think, whoa, that's weird. Christianity is not telling you what to do, firstly. It's telling you who you are. It's telling you a story. It's telling you the truth about the world you inhabit about the creator, 
about yourself within this world, which is all indicative verbs. It's telling you what is, because unless you know who you are, you'll have no idea what to do. Paul, he's, a, uh, he's one of the first church planters. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see him all throughout that book. And m- many of the New Testament letters are attributed to him. One of his most famous, which Liz read from earlier, is Romans. It's 16 chapters long. It's a long letter that Paul is writing to the church in Rome. And he spends 11 full chapters, three quarters of the entire letter, the first 11, chapters one through 11, he spends recapping the gospel story. He tells them about what God did when he created the heavens and the earth. He tells them about the rebellion of humankind. He tells them about why lost to ourselves we cannot find God. He tells this cosmic story of the gospel. And then he gets to chapter 12 and he goes, therefore, in light of all this, live like this. In light of all this, this is how we should behave. For Paul, for the gospel, being precedes action. We have no idea what to do unless we know who we are. And I'm sort of hinting around this idea, which you've probably heard before, The gospel is not religion. It's not, friends. It's a relationship. And relationships happen in the context of a story. See, religion, by and large, tells people how to reach some spiritual state, right? Religions are all an attempt to become more whole people. Um, Spiritually whole, reach a place of enlightenment, reach nirvana, Um, they're all aimed at the human creature taking certain steps to reach God-likeness. That is not fundamentally the message of Jesus. Religion says how humans take steps to get to God. The gospel says that God has come to us, which is why it's very different The gospel tells the story of how God has created and been pursuing his world. It's almost as if the lights are all out in the world and we're all blind and we're struggling to try to figure out how to live life the best way we can. And religion is one of those answers. And so we we try to take steps in a certain direction, but we have no idea which way to go because we we were born in the dark. The gospel, as so the story goes, is God saying, I'm coming to you, I'm turning on a light, and then I'll show you which way to walk out. Who is performing the action? In religions, it's myself. In the gospel, it's God and Jesus. Um, This past week, I was listening to a pastor give a talk to a group of us, and he told a, an amazing story. And I think it just epitomizes uh, the gospel message and, and what we're getting at so well. And he, he gave pastors permission to use his story. Um, so he's a pastor in New York City, up in Inwood, and um, he has a son, an eight-year-old son, and he told this one day that his son had a baseball game. And so he's at the game, and the game goes to the final innings, and his son is up to bat. 
It's like straight out of a movie. He's up to bat. There's a man on third. The team's down by one. It's a full count. And he's trying to encourage his son, but his son is super nervous. And his son calls time and tries to breathe. And, and his dad's like, you got this. You're, you're good. And his son gets back in the, the box. And the pitch comes. Says, the pastor says, it was a perfect swing, great technique. And he just whiffed it. Strike three, game over. And so the son is super disappointed and he comes up to his dad and he goes, I'm sorry. And his dad's like, sorry for what? It's like, I'm sorry I let you down. I disappointed you. And his dad goes, let me me be very clear. You did not disappoint me. Not once. Whether you had hit a home run, it would have made me no more proud. Whether you struck out, no less disappointment. You, you, did, you did not change at all what I think about you. And he goes, let me ask you a question. Why do you think I love you? And he goes, well, because I'm cool. <laughs> He's like, yeah, you're cool. You take after your mom in that regard. But that's not why I love you. Why do I love you? Because I'm your son. Exactly. If you would... By you striking out, did you alter the fact that you're my son? No. If you'd gotten a hit, would you have altered the fact that you're my son? No. So do you think anything will ever change my love for you if it's based on the fact that you're my son? No. That's the gospel. God has created you as a son and a daughter, and a lot of ish has gone down. But none of that has ever altered fundamentally your state as God's son and daughter. And therefore, his love will never be altered. When he looks at you, what do you think he sees? I can tell you what he sees. He sees and feels this sense of delight, of joy. He calls the angels, he's like, hey, have you considered this one? Oh, this one. I got it right with this one. Nothing can alter that relationship. It is the most fundamental relationship of the cosmos, according to the Christian story. Which means, therefore, before Christians know how to act or behave or live, we need to know who we are. We need to know that it's not up to how we act or behave or live. That's secondary. Primarily, who we are is God's beloved. We are before we do anything because we will fail to live up to what we are and that too is part of the story. So before we know where Hope Brooklyn is going, we must know who we are. Paul puts it this way. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can possibly be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns us? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, he's at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine 
or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we will face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, Paul says. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Why? Because of stuff you did? No. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's the gospel. There is nothing that can separate you from your God. He has come in search of you and the person of Jesus. He's come to find you, he's come to tell you that. And maybe that's where we need to start today. That you did nothing to earn your status and you can do nothing to lose it. Maybe you need to hear who you are. You're a son, you're a daughter. Yes, you are a liar. Yes, you are one who struggles with cheating. Yes, you're a bad spouse. Yes, all of that is true. But before all that's true, underneath, you are the beloved of the creator. And that's what his love is based on. Can't earn it, can't lose it. It's done. It's irrevocable. So before we know where Hope Brooklyn's going, we know who we are, who God has made us to be. Hope Brooklyn is. What are we? We are a diverse community. God plants diverse communities. Make sure, let me make sure I'm clarifying that. This is not who we're striving to be. This is who we are. This is the church that God starts. Hope Brooklyn is a diverse community. And in order to explain that, I gotta get a little theological on us, all right? We gotta go to the logic of the Trinity. So, in Christian doctrine, we hold that there is one God, one creator, one being that is before all. But just so happens that that one God is comprised of three beautiful persons. Now, where do we see that? We see it in scripture in various places. So when Jesus was baptized, Jesus is the God made flesh. He's the God who the author writes into the story. So Jesus is being baptized and as he goes into the water and comes back up, um, Matthew tells us, we hear a voice from heaven, which is the father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the spirit in the form of a dove comes down and rests on Jesus' shoulder. So we see all three of, of the Trinitarian elements. We also see it in salutations in Paul's letters. Whenever he writes to churches, he always acknowledges all three parts of the Father, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But there's a word that I really love that as, um, as Christian thought developed over the years, the first sort of theologians in the second and third century, they, they, they found this word that they think epitomized who the creator God is as best they could. And just so you know, we're not gonna get at full comprehension of the Trinity. 
It is beyond us. We can strive at it. But we won't get there. And, and this is the word they discovered. The word is perichoresis. Perichoresis. And it means a couple things. It means rotation. It means this, this mutual indwelling, this mutual inhering, this interpenetration. Community of being. But I love this one definition for it. And this is sort of became the popular understanding. God, as the triune God, as the one God in three persons, as perichoresis is defined as to dance around. To dance around. That God in his very nature is a giant dance. And so that's a popular image that developed. So you have one God, one substance, brilliantly comprised of three persons. Now here's something, here's a a fallacy that we uh, fall into sometimes. When we talk about the Father, it's not that we're only seeing one third of God. That's not it at all. When we, when we talk about the Father, we're seeing all of God. The fullness of the Son and the Spirit is in all of the Father. And when we talk about Jesus, we're not seeing just one third of God. We're seeing the fullness of the Father and the Spirit in Jesus. But, and I, I realize it stretches the the mind a bit here, for me as well. What God revealed of himself is that he is one God, one substance, brilliantly comprised of three persons. And so you have this this God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are constantly thinking of the others, constantly beholding the others' faces, dancing with one another. It's the great dance. And so if I may stretch even further the metaphor, I would say we are a diverse community because God is a diverse community. Something interesting about the, the Judeo-Christian understanding of creation, it's the, and I got this from one of Tim Keller's books, so take it up with him, but it's the only one that he's found in his studies that talks of a creator creating from love. All the other um, stories of how the world came into be is from a cosmic struggle of some sort. The Judeo-Christian story is the only one that tells of a God creating the world because of love. And it makes sense, doesn't it? If you're one God, like totally one substance, what do you know about love? The way we see it play out all around the world the way of true love being this mutual vulnerability, like the purest form of love would be to pour out my life in service and sacrifice for another. And hopefully they're doing the same to me. That's the purest form of love. What does a singular um, substance God know about that? But if, but if God is a giant dance, if God is one God comprised of three beautiful persons who are constantly interpenetrating and dancing with one another, then we can truly say God is love. Which means what happens in creation? But the one God who is three, who is a dance, opens up space in himself for those which are not God to join into the dance. The Trinity has opened up space in the divine dance for you and me. 
And when you look at creation, you realize that diversity is not a mistake. It's God's signature. That's who he is. One God in three persons. He creates all types. As of 2011, do you know 86% of the world's species were still unknown to us? 86% of the world's species are still unknown to humans as of 2011, which means there are creatures out there, species of plant and animal that simply exist because they bring God happiness. They have no utility for us. God is opening up room for the world to share in this dance. And what's the clearest representation that we have of a diverse family? I would say it's a family. Oh, I'm sorry, a diverse community. A family, right? Families have always been at the core of the human condition throughout history. There was a story I read recently of a hospital chaplain. And this chaplain worked for many, many years. And um, she wrote an article about, you know, her time, her experience as a chaplain, about what people want to talk about before death. And overwhelmingly, all people want to talk about is family. The families they had, the families they did not have, the families they wish they had, the friends who became family, families they lost. That's all people want to talk about. And you would think at death we get really honest because what do we care anymore, right? And in their most honest and vulnerable moments, people want to talk about family because it is the sign of the triune God's creation. God is the original family. A group of diverse individuals in Hamathumadon with one mind is the sign of the triune God's presence. And so Hope Brooklyn is this diverse community. Hope Brooklyn is this family. And there are all types of diversity, all types. Ethnic diversity, cultural diversity, passions and giftings, the stories you bring, and we need all of them. We need all of yourself to make this the fullness of who God intends us to be the doubts you harbor, diversity of our sins. And I just want to briefly talk about one other form of diversity because we've talked about it a bunch. Um, and that's the diversity of our opinions about Jesus. We say as one of our pillars, we are crowds and disciples. Basically, that's another way of saying that Hope Brooklyn does not exist solely for Christians. No matter where you may be on the spiritual spectrum of your thoughts about God or Jesus, you're welcome here. And I think that's interesting uh, because when you see Jesus, you know, when his ministry begins, he calls 12 people to be his disciples. But how does he disciple them? How does he minister to them? He doesn't say, okay, guys, come with me away from the world. We're going to go into like this cabin in the woods where there's no other signs of life. And I'm going to teach you right there for three years. That's not how he does it. What does he do? He takes the 12 guys and he says, follow me. And so if you look throughout scripture, throughout the gospels, most of the stories, not all, but most of the stories, you see the disciples around Jesus who's ministering to crowds and the crowds don't know who Jesus is. So he's teaching them and he's healing them and you have this beautiful dance, so to speak. Now, why is that important? 
Well, it's important because there was a, there was a study, a sociology study, about movements and tribes. And what they found in this study is that tribes, which are organizations that exist solely for its insiders, ultimately fail and die. What outlasts itself are movements. And movements are groups of people who come together around a singular cause, a cause that's outside itself, that they're moving toward together. So for our purposes, if a church exists only for the Christians, it will in fact fail to meet the needs of the Christians. That was what Jesus was trying to convince his disciples of. Your life is not for yourself. You do not exist for yourself. You exist to be broken bread and poured out wine for the world. That's the movement I'm calling you into. And it'll probably end in your death. But it's okay, we're not afraid of death because nothing can separate us from the love of God through, through me. God is a divine dance, which means we are meant to move, to be challenged, to stretch, and be uncomfortable not to settle for a life of comfort. So Hope Brooklyn, as a diverse community, another form of that diversity is gonna take is our opinions about the Jesus story, our opinions about this gospel, and all are welcome. And finally, if Hope Brooklyn is not what we intend to be, and if we are a diverse community, a family in Hamathumadon with one mind, one intention, one cause, then what's our primary activity that eats together? The primary activity, the primary function that sort of brings us together, brings this diverse community together, is food. Why? I think the gospel is most clearly perceived when a family, a diverse community, shares a meal together. And that's kind of always been the case. When you look historically um, in the ancient Near East, you see that who one ate with was a really big deal. A really big deal. It was a sign of acceptance. To eat with someone was to say, I accept you as a human being, as a person. And in Judaism, when it first came about through Abraham and, and some of the patriarchs, there was always, and we talked about this last week, there was always a radical expectation of hospitality, right? There was always a radical expectation that God's people would be hospitable to their neighbors. But as Judaism evolved, you see the, the, the acceptable list of table companions shrinking. So much so that by the time Jesus came on the scene, um, rabbinical traditions that came, that sort of traced back from the Pharisees, there were 341 rulings and 229 were related to table fellowship. 67% of the rabbinical traditions that were traced back to the Pharisees had to do with who you ate with. And so Jesus comes along, inherits the cultural context, and he just blows it right out of the water. One scholar put it this way. He goes, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. So much so that he developed a reputation in his ministry as a glutton and a drunkard. He said that. By his own admission, he goes, the son of man came eating and drinking. 
And you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard. Or provocatively, I heard it put once, Jesus was crucified because of how he ate. Jesus was crucified because the Jews couldn't stand the idea of a God blowing their entire system up, welcoming everyone to the table. Can you imagine the the chaos and the anarchy that would develop from that? If all debts are wiped clean, all status is erased in a moment because the table's open, and yet that's precisely what the gospel is. From Mark 2, very early on in in Mark's um, portrayal of Jesus's life, it reads this way. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi Levi got up and followed him. Pause right there real quick, just to uh, further um, prove the point on diversity. Levi was a tax collector. Basically, he was a Jew who betrayed his family for the sake of making a profit. So Jews hated him. He had no friends. The Pharisees, man, he, he... He was the scum of their people. And Jesus said, yeah, you too, come follow me, just so you know. Levi got up and followed him while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, at Levi's house, at a tax collector's house. Many other tax collectors and sinners were there eating with him and and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Why did Jesus conduct his ministry around meals? It was God's first vision, and it's his final vision. The gospel is about a God who is a divine dance, opening up space in the dance for others. We're guests invited to the party, so to speak. And the gospel is about how the dance has been thwarted for a while, but will not be in the end. I mean, remember, when when God created Adam and Eve, he told them, eat of any tree of the garden. And lest we forget, sin entered through the act of eating as well. Eating is fundamental to what it means to be human, to what it means to be created in this God's image. And then when God re-enters the scene in, the, in the, the person of Jesus, he re-enters through eating. So much so that he says this of himself in Revelation. He goes, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Our relationship with Jesus is likened to sharing a meal with him. And what about his questionable eating companions, the tax collectors and sinners that the Pharisees saw? Well, Jesus probably was saying, look, they're only questionable from your perspective, not mine. I remember creating them. And so I see them at their most fundamental level. Has anyone ever seen the movie Hook? Yeah, such a good movie. I heard they're making, oh no, that's not true. I was gonna say, I heard they're making a remake, but. I think it's Jumanji. They're making a remake of Jumanji. Also a great movie. Oh man, you can tell we are like Xers or early millennials with that quote right there. (laughs) Hook's got this scene in it. It tells the story of Peter Pan. And Peter Pan grows up. 
He leaves the lost boys, he enters the world, and he grows up. Then he comes back, and the lost boys don't recognize him because he's old now. And so they're kind of mistreating him a little bit. They're, They're criticizing him. And he's like, all right, what do I do? And then this one lost boy comes sort of out of the group. And there's this very slow, sort of emotionally manipulative music. (laughs) And he comes up to Peter and he takes off his glasses and he starts prodding his face. And Peter's just staring right back at him. And he prods his face and he pulls it into a smile. And when he does that, he goes, oh, there you are, Peter. He sees him. And then the other lost boys come and like, oh, it's Peter, it's Peter. Then they see him and then they share a meal together. The Pharisees are coming to Jesus and like, why are you eating with these people? And Jesus is like, because you don't see them the way I see them. I'm proud in their face. And all you see is that they've gotten old. They've gotten aged. What you fail to recognize are all the ways that you've gotten old and aged too. But when I look at both of you, I'm proud in your face. I'm like, oh, there you are. I remember creating you. Every, every ounce of you I remember. Jesus is going, you don't see what I see. You don't understand how deep the brokenness goes. And not just in you, but in this cosmos. You don't know how deep the brokenness goes because you don't remember creating it. You don't remember opening up space in yourself for people to come to the dance. See, the Pharisees thought that you got invited to the, to the party based on how you ate or how you didn't eat or who you hung out with. And Jesus is like, no. You get invited to the party because God created you. That's it. So everyone's invited to the party. It's not an exclusive party at all. The only condition is if you accept the invitation or not. It was the original vision and it's the final vision. In Isaiah 25, the prophet foretells sort of the the next age, the age we all wait for. And he says this way, he goes, on this mountain, meaning Mount Zion, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. The gospel's final image is of a restored family sitting at a table sharing a feast together. So Hope Brooklyn is that family enacting the final vision while we await for his return. We enact that final vision now because we're learning to see how Jesus sees. And it means we might be put down by the world. It might, because they don't understand this and this would breed a whole lot of confusion. But that's okay. We will invite all to the feast, nevertheless, because we were invited to the feast. 
Hope Brooklyn is a diverse community that eats together. Will you pray with me? Father, we just make this so difficult sometimes. And we know that too is part of the story because our eyes are learning to see again. Our eyes are learning to see the reality of your world that we've forgotten. Is it really as simple as a God who is love opening up space to throw a party for those you create? Is it as simple and as free as us being a people who don't know how to find you, but you loving us so much that you come in search of us? And even when we meet you and we don't like you and we kill you, that in fact is part of the story of your great love story for the world. It seems incredulous, Lord. It seems absolutely incredible because there's no story like this. And we don't know what to do with that type of freedom. But I pray, Father, as you continue to plant this community, as you create hamathumadon in us, as you give us one mind and one vision and one heart, that it would be a heart that says to the world, you don't have to do anything. There's nothing expected of you Nothing requested of you. You are a son and a daughter. That we would be that type of diverse community that does not fear one another for all our differences, but recognizes it as a signature of who you are. That we would serve one another, that we would serve those outside of us, and that we would do that through eating a lot of food. Will you make us and to what this vision that you're giving us. And it's all because we come to your table and we feast on your body and your blood. And we recognize that you are who you say you are and that you will never fail us, that nothing can separate us. No matter what we're going through, no matter how undeserving we feel or deserving we feel, neither of those can separate us. We praise you, Jesus. Help us to be really good servants. It's in your name we pray, amen.